Bradley and Ian's heading that way. Bye, Ian. See ya. Okay. All right. The rest of you turn in your Bible to 1 John. I've got chapter 5 on the screen. We're going to be there, but I want you to start with me in 1 John chapter 1. I know that you probably uh, get the question presented to you from people who don't go to church or who do not uh, believe in God, why you do believe and why you follow Christ and why you uh, attend church somewhere and what's the reason for it. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who gets those questions. And I want today to talk about why we believe what we believe. A lot of people today have a religious experience with God. What I mean by that is they come under conviction of wrong that they've done and they feel the need to get that straightened out. They feel a guilt because of breaking God's command and so they think that they can get that taken care of by going to church. And they find that when they come to church, it doesn't relieve them of their guilt. In fact, more guilt is put upon them. And they don't find an avenue to get away from the sin by just coming to church because it's not coming to church that heals you. It's not coming to church that saves you. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when a person has a religious experience and not a relationship with Christ, they can't keep up that front. And so they question us, we who regularly attend church, who talk to them about Christ in this relationship, and they really don't get it even though they would like to. And so you and I have questions thrown at us, why we believe what we believe. What do I stand on? Well, I stand on this word of God. And for some, that's not enough proof. I stand on the changed life that God has given me. You know, he changed my life, Jesus Christ. But the person asking questions could say, hey, uh, Judaism changed Madonna's life. Buddhism changed Richard Gere's life. Scientology changed Tom Cruise's life. Jesus Christ changed your life. Big deal. I mean, a person can go anywhere under any kind of teaching and get their life changed. But that's not why I'm a Christian. That's not why I believe what I believe. There has to be some facts behind Jesus Christ. There has to be some truth about Him. There has to be something that is foundational in what you and I believe. Why we believe what we believe. The book of 1 John is full of that information. There are 25 times in this book that John mentions, we know. Or you know. All right? There are examples throughout the book of facts and, 
and evidence and historical information and things that happened and recorded that you and I can stand on as truth. It happened. It's something that I can base my faith on, right? Faith is not in a church or in Christianity. Faith is not blindly believing in God. Amen? It's not just throwing myself out there and hoping that God will swoop me around and, and let me uh, have some trust in Him. And, and just because somebody preached a message on faith, faith is something that I can put my feet on. There's facts behind faith. So, let's dig in and find why we believe what we believe today. 1 John chapter 1. You stand with me and we'll read three verses there. Then we're going to flip to 1 John chapter 5. Alright, 1 John chapter 1 says this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now turn to chapter 5. Hey, what, how more, how can it get more real than hearing it, seeing it, and touching it, right? There is no religious experience that can match hearing, seeing, and touching. But that's what John said. I've seen it, I've heard it, and I've touched him. Amen? He is life. I proclaim that to you. Now at the end of his book, he adds some more basis for you and I to have faith. Let's look in chapter 5, verse 5. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 8, For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that He has borne witness concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God 
in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, bless your word for us today and teach us from it. And let us see the evidence, the foundation that we can stand and put our faith on and prove to the world that you are true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Why do I believe what I believe? John wraps it up really with this phrase, the testimony of God. God bearing witness. God telling us about His Son. You know, there's no doubting but trusting when it comes to God bearing witness. God's testimony is based upon three witnesses, all right? It's not just, if you don't want to believe what God says, then look at the witnesses that God uses to bear testimony about His Son, all right? We read all of those. The first witness that we're going to look at is the water and the blood, all right? First two witnesses, I, I should say. Look in verse 6 again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. What is he referring to there? Right? Let's talk about it for a second and reason about it. Now, some people want to think that the water has to do with Jesus' earthly birth. Right? And a woman's water breaks and the child comes forth. But that's not what John is referring to here. Right? He's, bar- he's telling us about a place in history, mind you, where Jesus came and the Father bore testimony about the Son. All right? So where's that happening? At Jesus' baptism. Right? Jesus comes to the Jordan River. John's preaching repentance, right? Faith in God. And all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, and John says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus says, I've come to be baptized by you, John. And John is concerned about that. And in the text, in the Gospels, we read that John says, Ah, Lord, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, John, permit it at this time so that you and I will fulfill all righteousness. Right? So what is baptism? It's a picture, really, of someone being cleansed, of of, of submerging in water and coming out. It's a picture today we're going to bear witness to of a death of a person and the resurrection of a new life for that person. Dying to their old life, raising to a new life. And we do that and we need that because Jesus commanded it. But at the same time, it's a picture of a sinner being cleansed to walk in a new life with God. Jesus didn't need to be cleansed because of sin did he? He was sinless, and he lived a sinless life. So why did he need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness? The reason is because Jesus came to represent you and I and our sin. He came to take on the guilt and the punishment for our sin. Amen? That's what he came to do. Now, no one really knew that. John was quoting 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but I'm not even sure then if John knew what that really meant. Because John even questioned if Jesus was the one later on in John's life. But he was prophesying there by saying Jesus was coming to take away our sin. So Jesus, being representative man, needed to be baptized to fulfill righteousness of God and the cleansing of man to come to God. Baptism doesn't cleanse you. It's a picture of you being cleansed. It's a picture of you dying and raising to a new life. There's nothing holy about that water. It came out of the same tap that fills our kitchen sinks. Okay? It's just a picture of what's taking place in the heart of the person being baptized, and you are the one watching it. And so Jesus came... Being representative man, he went through the baptism to fulfill the righteousness God requires of a man being cleansed. Now, at the baptism, God points out something that Jesus is from him and therefore he is unblemished. And here's what God said at the baptism. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Coming from God, He was unblemished and had no sin, but He took on sin for you and I. Therefore, He went through the ordinance of baptism. And at that baptism, God bore witness of His Son. This is the one who came by water and blood. Not water only, but by the water and by the blood. You see that? God bore witness of His Son, an historical event. Amen? It's not something that's just going to be found in the Scriptures. Josephus could write about it. Other writers of history could write about Jesus and, and, and the crowds of people going to the river Jordan and being baptized. Right? God bore witness of His Son at that baptism. Now, let's go on. The water and the blood. There's more, right? If He bore uh, witness at the water, He also bore witness of the blood. And when did that take place? At the end of Jesus' ministry, when His blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin of man. We are covered with that sacrifice in the sight of God as Christian people. And God doesn't see you and your sin. He sees His Son's blood covering that. Right? Why is that necessary? Why do churches today don't want to talk about the blood? Because it's gory and ugly and putrid. There's nothing gory and ugly and putrid about the blood of the Son of God being shed to cover our sin because He gave His life and life is in the blood. So Jesus' blood was spilled so that you and I could have our sin covered with that sacrifice. 
Now, not, not everybody gets that benefit, do they? But the one who believes it, believe it took place, believe it happened for them, takes it personal, that person receives that benefit. Another man who doesn't believe it, thinks it's hocus-pocus, thinks it's a fairy tale, rejects it, he does not get the benefit of that sacrifice. God's serious about His Son. And as such, you and I need to take Him seriously. Not flippantly, even as we live a Christian life. Take God serious. He is serious about the death of His Son. Now, what happened at the death of Jesus that bore witness to Him from God the Father? The Bible tells us that the sky was darkened. That does not mean a storm cloud rolled over the sun, okay? That's not what that means. It means the sky went black. Supernatural things, not a cloud in the sky. You know what we do with Hollywood. They all want to roll a storm in, right, to darken the sky. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the sky was darkened. The Bible says in Matthew 27 that there were numerous resurrections of people from graves around Jerusalem who rose from the dead and appeared to many in Jerusalem. That don't happen by chance. That's not a religious experience. Amen. That's in recorded history. God bearing witness to the death of His Son by raising saints from the grave. The Bible also says, and we sang it this morning, that the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Indicating God tore it, not men. Men would have torn it from the bottom to the top. God tore it from the top to the bottom, opening the way to the Holy of Holies so that man could now step into the presence of God through the death of Jesus Christ, His Son. God opened the door for you and I to come to Him by His Son dying in our place. That bore testimony of Jesus Christ at His death. The water and the blood. But wait, there's more. Alright? Now we get to talk about, come on, my little clicker. We want, we want to talk about, uh, well, let me say this. I, I, I had that up there and I, I took it away. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible says this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. All right, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. And we can understand that that's something that we can know. I don't have to wonder if that happened. I don't have to question if that happened. 2,000 plus years ago, a man named Jesus Christ died on the cross. Amen? They ran a spear in his side to see if he was dead, and he was. And water and blood came out. He was put into a tomb. Three days later, he couldn't be found. The stone was rolled away. Clay Hicks, what do you think happened? I think God raised him from the dead. 
That's what I think happened. But I do know this, that he died on that cross. Whether I believe that or not, whether I think it's true in the Bible or not, I cannot dispute the fact that a man named Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And he was dead. Door, nail, dead. Amen? God bore witness of that by darkening the sky, by raising people from the dead, and by tearing the veil from top to bottom. I believe that. That's a testimony of God about His Son. He came by the water and He came by the blood. Now let's talk about the Spirit. Remember, it says there in verse 8, For there are three witnesses, there are three that bear witness. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. So how does the Spirit bear witness of Jesus? And it says these all agree. Whenever the story of the birth of Jesus or the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus is told, guess who intervenes? The Spirit of God. Whenever that story is going out to different people, the Spirit of God begins to work in the heart of the hearer of that story. And you know what He does? He suddenly makes it personal. When I, in school, read history books, and I read about George Washington in my history books, George Washington did not become personal to me. It was just a history story. When I read about Joseph Stalin and communism, Joseph Stalin did not become personal to me. When I heard stories about famous people all over the world who have died and gone, they did not become personal to me. But for some reason, when somebody as a boy, when I was a boy, somebody told me about this man named Jesus. They told me what he did, where he came from, who he was. All of a sudden, it became personal. How did, I, how did that happen? Why would I care about somebody named Jesus as a boy, or as a teenager, or as an adolescent, or as a young man, or as an old man. The Spirit begins to move in the heart of the hearer to make the story of Jesus personal. Amen? That's what happened to John. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. And suddenly John was drawn in to Jesus. Just like many of you in this room have been drawn in to Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God began to work in you and make it a personal event. Suddenly, I found myself involved in this story. I wasn't out to get involved in, in the story of a, of a son from a God up in the heavens somewhere. But suddenly... As I grew up and became a man, I found myself involved in that story. You all know John Newton, right? He wrote several hymns. He was a despicable man. He, you talk about human trafficking. John Newton was the father of human trafficking. All right? He carried slaves from Africa to the United States. From wherever he could gather them, he carried slaves. One trip back to England... He was sick, ill. Somebody shared Jesus Christ with him. John Newton opened his heart and received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. 
And from that moment on, we've got many amazing hymns from that man. One of them is our national anthem, Amazing Grace, right? John Newton wrote that. Here's another hymn that he wrote. Let me read it to you. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, until a new object met my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Come on, clicker. Sure, never till my last breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience owned and felt my guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and served to nail him there. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. My blood was for thy ransom paid. I died that you may live. Wow, that's it. When we hear the story of Jesus, and suddenly the Holy Spirit makes it real in us. And we understand why He died on that cross and what He was doing. And the Spirit bears witness to us that Jesus is the Son of God taking away the sin of the world. Look what Paul wrote about it in Romans 8. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I pray today, my friend, that you have that witness in you. That the Holy Spirit of God is bearing witness to you right now that you're safe, that you're secure, that you're in the arms of God through the death of Jesus Christ. If he's not, then there's still hope for you because you're still breathing. If you don't have that witness in you, then something's amiss. God's Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are his child. If you don't have that witness, then there's something you must do. It says here in our text that these three agree. The water... The blood and the Spirit all agree. What do they agree about? They agree about this verse on the screen. 2 Corinthians 5. He, being God, made Him, being Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus, in Him. You see that? That's bearing witness. That's what God wants us to see. That God made His Son sin, which behooves us that we might become the righteousness of God because we're sinners and we're hopeless without Jesus. And so God has done that. And now He bears testimony of it. He says, this all happened, and here are my three facts. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. All 
facts behind my testimony of my son, Jesus Christ. God is sharing his testimony with you today. We all go around sharing our testimony of what God's done for us. Amen. Today, God's sharing his testimony of what he's done for you and what he wants to do for you. Now, let's go on. There's more. Verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Now, how do I receive the witness of a man? Have any of you ever taken a Tylenol or a Aleve or a Motrin? Come on. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. You receive the testimony of men by putting that in your mouth. Did you know that? Because you're trusting that the people at the pharmaceutical plant that made that pill put in it what's supposed to be in it. And you're trusting that it's going to do what the bottle says it's going to do. And somebody wrote on that bottle what that pill will do. You are taking the testimony of men. How many of you ever pulled up to a two-way stop on a highway to stop at the stop sign? Or how many of you have come up on a two-way stop and you're on the highway and you're putting your testimony, your witness, your faith and trust in the man who's pulling up to the stop sign that he's going to stop. So you keep going. We bear witness to each other and we trust each other and we do that every day. Men trusting men, right? That's what verse 9 says. If we receive the witness of men, God's witness is greater than men's witness. Amen? If I can trust you and you can trust me, can I trust him? Isn't he reliable? Isn't he faithful? Isn't he the one that I can put my trust and my faith in? That's what verse 9 is telling us there, to trust God. Then he goes on to say, but refusal to trust God is insulting to him. Let's say I came up to you and I said, hey, I, I want to tell you something I, I, I learned today, and it was a true fact, and you said, oh, I wish I could believe that. I, I'm, I'm trying to convince myself to believe that. I, I need some more time. I, I, need to, I, need to, uh, uh, I need to just be off by myself and just try to figure this out. I, I need to pray. I, I need to read. I need to get on the Internet. I need to do this and do that before you believe a fact that I've told you. What would I say? <laughs> Whatever. You, you would be insulting, right? Well, here's what we do with God. Oh, God, I wish I could believe that Jesus really was your son. I wish I could believe that the cross was real. I wish I could believe. I wish I could convince myself. I'm doing the best I can. And so verse 9 goes on. If we receive the witness of men and the witness of God is greater, for the witness of God is this, that he has borne witness concerning his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made God a liar. You don't believe the witness of God, you might as well call God a liar. And that's not certainly what we want to do. God has offered us something that we could not have. That witness is this, in verse 11, that God has given us eternal life. Not life in quantity, not life in years or eons or decades or centuries. Life in quality. 
not life in quantity, even though that is part of the equation, eternal life, life in quality, abundant life, Jesus called it, adventurous life, the disciples called it, exciting life, Paul calls it, full life, meaningful life, relevant life. This is what God is offering. Guess what? It's God's gift to you. God is offering you a gift. It's eternal life. And He bore witness of that through the testimony of the water, the blood, and the Spirit. And so all you have to do is receive that gift. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to uh, say ten Bible verses by memory. You don't have to uh, repeat the Ten Commandments. You don't have to know the twelve disciples by name. You just got to reach out and take God's gift. And you do that with your heart. And you receive Jesus. The whole point of the entire Bible is receiving Jesus Christ. And God giving you eternal life. Jesus in John chapter 1, the same guy that wrote this wrote John the Gospel. And he said this in verse 11 of chapter 1. Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to them who received him... He gave the right, the power, the privilege to become a son of God. All you have to do is receive that gift and you can become the son of God. It's not a valiant effort of Christianity that's going to save you. It's not an amount of devotion to God that's going to save you. It's not a level of religion that you attain that's going to save you. John writes to us in verse 12, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. God's gift is eternal life. Eternal life is God's gift. You and I were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We were alienated from the life of God. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us love through His Son, Jesus Christ. And now Jesus has become everything. Do you believe God's testimony about His Son? You have some basis now to share with people about why you believe what you believe. The water the blood, the Spirit. You start telling the story about Jesus to that person, God's going to start working on their heart, and He's going to make that story personal. And they're going to find themselves involved in it. And guess what? Jesus said, few find life. Many find destruction. Just because you tell the story and the Holy Spirit's working on the heart of the hearer doesn't mean they're going to receive it. We want that. I wouldn't even waste my time if, somebody, if I knew somebody wasn't going to receive God's gift. But we don't know, so we tell the story everywhere we go, to everyone we meet, anytime, any place that God lines that up, we share that story. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will work on that person. Guess what? He does. Now that person can receive that story or he can reject that story. If he receives it, then God gives him the power to become a child of God. Do you believe the testimony of God about his son? 
This belief gives you a sure foundation that you can know that you're saved. That's another question I get as a pastor, Brother Clay. I don't know if I'm saved or not. Okay, let's sit down and look at the Bible. Have you done what God said to do to be saved? Yes, I have. Then here's your problem. You're not trusting him. You think you've got to do more. You think you've got to jump through hoops. You think you've got to repeat ten Bible verses by memory. You think you've got to put money in that offering plate. You think you've got to sing in the choir. You think you've got to get baptized every week. Amen. You see what I'm saying? There's things that we don't trust about God's salvation because it doesn't involve our effort and our work. And God says it's a free gift. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. I give it to you. You receive it. It changes your life. And now you walk with me. That's what Christianity is. That's what God wants us to see. John tells us, God bore witness. Now you have a foundation to stand on with your faith. Verse 13, I'm closing with this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Dennis and Jennifer, Ed, y'all want to go get ready and Bree, where'd Bree go? Did she go to children's church? Gail's going to go get her. Y'all go back and get ready if you would. And let's say that again. Verse 13, we can know that we have eternal life. We don't have to hope for it. Remember, John wrote 25 times in his letter here, we know there are things that we can know. And one of them is this, that we can know that we have eternal life. Faith must rest upon Jesus Christ alone. We cannot allow it to rest upon somebody else. We've got witnesses to our foundation for our faith, God's testimony. That's all we really need, but God puts witnesses with this testimony, the water, the blood, and the Spirit. He who has the Son has the life. Do you have the Son? Have you received Christ? Are you walking with Christ? Or are you one of those who have had a religious experience with God? It was genuine and real. You shed tears of guilt and shame. You prayed a prayer. You got baptized. But your life did not change. You went back to doing the same old thing. Let me tell you something. If that's real for you, I can tell you right now, you're not saved. The Spirit of God will not allow you to do that. He will wreck you before He allows you to go back. Amen? He will ruin you before He allows you to go back. The Israelites came out of Egypt. They said, hey, we want to go back to Egypt. Moses said, no, you're not. You're not going back. You can't go back. Amen? God saves someone. He doesn't save you to let you go back. So if you haven't had a changed life, you need to get right with Him today. If you're not walking with Him now, you probably haven't been walking with Him before. The Spirit works in the man to keep the man, to guide the man, to show the man. Do you have that testimony in you the spirit of god do you have the son have you the witness of jesus christ in you i know some of you have heard this but i want to share it with some who haven't there was a gentleman a rich famous gentleman who had collected 
artifacts and antiques from all over the world. He had paintings from everywhere in the world. And he passed away. And so there was going to be a tremendous auction. Thousands of people at this auction to buy these artifacts and this artwork and all these things. And the auctioneer got up to the front of the stage and he pulled out a picture, which is up there on the screen, of a young man. And he said, we'll begin the auction with this. And the whole crowd went, uh, who is it? This is the old man's son. He died several years ago. And the old man requested that we begin the auction with the portrait of his son. Somebody yelled out, I'll give you five bucks. Another one, six bucks. Let's get this over with so we can get to the real stuff. Finally, a guy stood up in the middle of the crowd and said, I'll give you $10. Sold to the man in the middle for $10. Gave him the, photo, gave him the portrait. The auctioneer went back to the pulpit, closed his book, and said, the auction's over. Everybody was in an uproar. What are you talking about? What happened? The auction's not over. It hadn't even begun yet. He said, right here in the old man's will, it says this, whoever gets the son gets it all. And he walked away. Do you have the son? Do you have Jesus? John gave you proof. Today you need to make sure that's all you can do. Do you have Jesus? Jesus.